let me let me pray for us, and uh, we'll we'll uh, jump into our uh, discipline discussion. God, thank you so much for uh, these men, for this church, and for your word that guides us, that instructs us so well, so thoroughly and sufficiently on uh, living godly lives, on knowing you, and on caring well for uh, our own hearts and homes. God, I pray that you would uh, just be with us in the next uh, several moments, that we would be attentive uh, to what you have to say to us, that our hearts would be moldable and eager to receive uh, the word of truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to look at a couple verses in 1 Timothy 1 that's going to highlight the importance of Bible reading. This is going to highlight the importance of Bible reading for us because we see as, as Paul is instructing Timothy for the purpose of shepherding the church in Ephesus, he gives us a good, a good insight into what's at stake when men drift away from a pure life. Uh, so let me just read verse, verse 3. I'll start at verse 3 and read through 7. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's just other teachings, not approved by the apostles. Verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Paul is writing to this young pastor in Ephesus that he's left there to continue the shepherding work. And after... Or as he's, he's writing, this letter would have certainly been read before the congregation, even though it was a, a personal letter to Timothy. And it would have made Timothy accountable to the congregation and the congregation accountable to Timothy and the other elders as they hear Paul's apostolic will for the church uh, as it's communicated specifically to Timothy. The first order of business, the first thing that Paul reminds Timothy, even verse 3 urges Timothy, again, to take care of, is the error that's being taught. Address the men teaching error, and you have instructions for them. Namely, verse 3, stop teaching other stuff. Strange doctrines. 
and verse 4 stop paying attention to myths and endless genealogies they these men certainly would have found these things in the old testament so it's not like they neglected bible reading entirely but they just read it in the wrong way and for the wrong purpose their teaching didn't do what god entrusted the church to be about we see in verse 4 it didn't further the administration of god which is by faith but what did it accomplish we see that in verse 4 as well what they're teaching what they're giving their attention to gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of god which is by faith so to get up and teach throughout the week in a smaller setting, house to house, on a Sunday, these men, when they were done teaching, it left people with lots of speculative questions, things that would lead to speculation about things that weren't really in the text, just, things, just questions, uh, endless ramblings about things that were associated with the text but not that the old testament was actually teaching not things that even the apostles actually taught these men were familiar we see uh, in verse 7 with the law they were wanting to be teachers of the law what god has given the church to be about this is all believers the the administration of god which is by faith is a reference uh, to what's defined in verse 5 their teaching didn't accomplish this, but Paul and Timothy's teaching, right teaching, the, made the goal of their instruction what? What does it say in verse 5? What's the goal of biblical, truly biblical instruction? Love. And not just any kind of love, but love that has its source in three things. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Purity, goodness, and sincerity of the heart, conscience, and faith. That's what biblical instruction accomplishes. That's how you can know if you're sitting under biblical teaching, if the effect of the teaching is when Christians love others, they, they truly love from a pure life is the, is the caveat. They become a holy people who then, from that holiness, that inward piety, if you will, love. Verse, verse 6 is where Paul highlights the importance and what's ultimately at stake in failing to possess a pious or pure inner life. Purity of heart, goodness of conscience, sincerity of faith. Those are things that can't be readily seen on the outside. Those aren't works, right? A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Those are inner realities. Those are things that you must shepherd your heart to be about to possess, right? What's at stake? Verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside straying from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith they departed from that they left that they wandered away from those things they focused on other stuff 
And what ended up ha happening <clears throat> is it says they have turned aside, or even better translated, were turned aside. They were turned aside. That's the difference between have turned aside and were turned aside. It's just the, the, uh, the sense. It's active versus passive. They did it versus it was done to them. And the better way to translate this is were turned aside, the passive. So it's almost like when they chose to depart from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, they were left with no other option than to turn aside into teaching error. And the lesson we should take away from that is your, all of your good doctrine, all of the good doctrine being taught from the teachers at this church even, will not survive an impure conscience, an impure inner life. Your good doctrine means nothing if you don't keep a pure heart. Your good doctrine can't endure an impure inner life. You will be left with no other option, even as you try to hang on to good doctrine. If you leave a pure inner life, it will slip away. You will wander into error, just like these men who happen to be teachers. This whole first chapter is about how to think about the men who were teaching error as well as the error they were teaching. Paul gets to in verse 8 what they should be doing with the law, sanctifying the church. Uh, he gets to verse 12, an autobiographical section, which is sort of where he ends the chapter, uh, even holding himself up as a hopeful example for the false teachers. Paul himself was one who didn't properly use the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and yet God showed him abundant mercy. So there's hope for these men teaching error in Ephesus. But he gets eventually in verse 19 to men, two examples of these men and what ended up happening to them when they forsook a pious inner life. He tells Timothy uh, to fight this good fight, right? Defending the church from, as he engages in, uh, in this battle for souls. Verse 19, how should he engage in that fight? Verse 19, keeping faith, again, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Timothy is supposed to engage in this battle giving attention himself even to the same things a good conscience a sincere faith don't not losing his grip on those things because the ultimate end of that as paul is showing us is apostasy you will make shipwreck of your faith you will make shipwreck of your belief in right teaching if you don't obtain and maintain a pure inner life. Apostasy is at stake. What does that have to do with Bible reading? You can't get to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those things are impossibilities apart from healthy, continual doses of Bible reading. 
You must saturate your mind and your heart in the truths of God's word, not to forget them once you close your Bible, but to meditate them on them the rest of the day. When's the last time you thought about your Bible reading with that significance? Not, I'm going to apostatize at the end of the day if I don't read my Bible. <laughs> That's not what we're saying, right? But as you get lazy, perhaps, about Bible reading, as you make excuses for what else is more important or what should take priority, as you've chosen to engage in some form of entertainment in lieu of Bible reading and substituted other seemingly harmless things in place of Bible reading, does the thought come to mind what I'm risking in this moment and if I continue this practice as I'm lethargic about Bible reading is, the, is my very soul. I'm risking my good doctrine. I'm risking drifting in the error and making shipwreck of my faith if this is my practice. Those, those thoughts, if they came more readily to mind, would do us much, much good and motivate us to read our Bibles like our souls depend on it, because it does. I want to finish with a, a quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, you are speaking to the person who neglects Bible reading, who can read but just refuses to read their Bible. He says this, you are in danger because there is not a single reasonable excuse you can allege for neglecting the Bible. You have no time to read, indeed, but you can make time for eating, drinking, sleeping, and perhaps newspaper reading and smoking. You might easily make time to read the word. Alas, it is not want of time, but waste of time that ruins souls. You find it too troublesome to read, indeed, you had better say at once, it is too much trouble to go to heaven and you are content to go to hell. Truly, these excuses are like the rubbish around the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. They would all soon disappear if, like the Jews, you had a mind to work. Reader, I say for the last time, will you not repent and read your Bible? God has preserved uh, in his word the means of preserving our souls. Bible reading, Bible meditation. We have the truth, and we should avail ourselves to it for that reason. Today we're going to talk about the discipline of shepherding my heart. There's two ways we shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts when our Bibles are open, and we shepherd our hearts throughout the day after our Bibles have been closed, but we're using the Word, we're using what we read that day, either by meditating on it, memorizing it, thinking on it, to guide the way we uh, walk through our life. Uh, today, specifically, we're going to be talking about how we shepherd our heart throughout our day when we encounter circumstances in which our expectations are not really met. So what we're going to do is recognize that um, we need to think about carefully about how we prepare our heart to actually engage with God's Word. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that, then we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about how it is that we shepherd our heart throughout the day after we're done with our Bible reading and we're dealing with the life that the Lord has prepared for us. 
Last time we met, we listened to Josh teach us through seven excellent principles on how to uh, honor the Lord in our Bible reading. And so I just refer you back to Josh and the great principles there that we learned from that, right from Josh's heart, right from Josh's experience. What I'm going to share with you first in the first part of our, our message today is going to be how to prepare our heart for our Bible reading. This is one thing that it is not a, a formula, it's not a design, but this is one method by which you can actually prepare your heart well for when you meet alone with the Lord in the reading of your word. The elders put this together several years ago as something we wanted to put in front of the men and build every year, so I'm just going to read through this. Um, this is an example of how the build disciplines might shape your prayerful approach to God through his word when you're meeting with him. You start by addressing the Father, Heavenly Father, I intend this time in your word to be an expression of worship of you, desire for you, love for you, need of you, dependence on you. Any of this and all of this is only possible through your son, Jesus Christ, who is my Savior. I approach you through him, my substitute and my high priest, the one whom I love but I have not yet seen. The next paragraph is going to be a paragraph that informs us about the divine revelation of God's word. It's really important that we agree with God about the source of his word. I have your word open before me because you have revealed yourself there more clearly than in any other place. And I long to know you better. I desire to see you in all of your glory in the pages before me. I simply and humbly draw near to you to study you. Nearness to you through these pages of scripture is my good. The next paragraph talks about the nearness of sin in our life and how the reading of the word helps us be aware of that. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and the fallenness before you so I might better understand what danger I truly was in and what dangers still lurk within me. I need to see both the sin that provoked your righteous wrath toward your son and your grace that moved you to act as a savior toward me in Jesus. If I do not fight to have scripture's view of my sin today, I will easily be duped by sin's deception and become unaware of sin's nearness to me. I will then be vulnerable to sin's entanglements. Sin at that point can then become unfamiliar, become familiar to me. Finally, sin can then become a delight to me. And before I know it, I will be in a position of weakness with my sin. I'll be in the fight of my life to be free from its entanglements. If I do nothing today concerning my view of sin, my view of sin will only grow cloudy. So he talks about the nearness of sin and why we read God's word to help us there. But he also talks about the power of the gospel in our fight against sin. And this is so important. Anytime we consider sin... It's important that we remember the power that the gospel actually has for us. Your word is open before me, so I might undergird my life again today with your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son, who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. I need the foundation of your gospel under me clearly so that I can see just how you have equipped me through it to fight against my sin and fight for obedience to you through Jesus Christ. I am here to reserve your, rehearse your bedrock promises in the gospel to my soul. There are treasures in the gospel of Jesus that I have yet to discover in my own life, and I long to find them. If I stagger today under the weight of my sin, the gospel will buoy me and provide me the gospel rest I need. And if I am in a moment of gospel growth and success, rehearsing the gospel will lead me to humbly acknowledge that all the credit goes to you. So he understands that reading the gospel actually enables him and helps him in his fight against sin. And then the next paragraph talks about what holiness really looks like, the form of holiness. I have your word open before me today to study and fight what righteousness and holiness of life looks like for the one who has been made into a new creature in Christ. 
In the new man, you created a desire for obedience. I need to consistently feed those new God-given desires in my new condition so that they grow. If I do not study this righteousness and holiness of life and what the blessings of obedience are, I should not expect my desire for obedience to grow. Indwelling sin will do everything possible to quench that desire. By your grace and power, as I see holiness of life placed in front of me in the pages of Scripture, I will long to better align my life and behavior with what pleases you. And then he closes with my heart and my desire of what is these pages reveal about you and all of your triune greatness. I long for you to spill out of me into my home wherever you lead me today. All who come into contact with me today must interact with a man whose heart is drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from a man who has searched you in your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel who walks by your spirit. So this is a way of preparing our heart for for the reading of God's word. It conditions our heart. It helps us to get away from reading the word as an obligation or a ritual or anything like that. And whatever works for you to prepare your heart to engage with God in a meaningful way, by all means do that. This is one method of doing that. That's one method of just preparing your heart to engage well with God's word when you have it open before you. What I'm going to spend the most of our time now doing is talking about how we shepherd our heart throughout the day when the circumstances of life that God has prepared for us are different from those that we had anticipated, those that we had prayed for, those that we had expected. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about two approaches to this. We're going to talk about the unbiblical approach first and go through that hopefully rather briefly, but then spend the majority of our time with the biblical approach um, to handling God's word and, and using God's word when events of life are not what we had planned for. Well, the unbiblical approach involves counseling ourselves with our own thoughts. And what I did here is I, I have a setting for us to consider what happens when we, we set our expectations for what will take place in our life. Many times we have desires and plans for something that we see as good. I want to provide well for my family. I want to upgrade my professional skills or certifications. I want to accelerate my path to retirement. <laughs> my wife and I want to try for a child. I want to have a good, productive day. You might have desires also that relate specifically to ministry. I want to become better equipped for ministry. I want to prepare well for a ministry opportunity. I have a desire to see a ministry that I'm overseeing run in a certain way. All of these things, to be sure, are good things. They, they really, really are good things. All of them point towards something going forward with what we have planned. So we prepare, we're optimistic, we have a sense that the Lord is in our corner. And But what might happen, perhaps unknowingly, is that we set up some expectations for what is going to take place in the very near future, and then we wait. And that expectation plays a significant role in how we respond as this scenario plays itself out. So the next section I, I listed was just the outcome, what God actually ordains to come to pass. So we have this expectation, and... In his wisdom, God brings to pass events other than what we have desired. Maybe you were anticipating something and nothing came about. Maybe you expected one thing and the Lord provided something else. Or maybe um, everything came about all at once and it just wasn't what you had anticipated. In any case, what you were expecting did not come to pass. And you're, you're at a decision point of how to respond when what you expected did not come to pass. And again, what you were expecting in general was something that was good. It was good and it was right. 
what happens when we counsel ourselves with our own thoughts regarding the failure or an expectation that did not come to pass is that our joy and our contentment are abandoned, they're compromised, they're lost in our life. When we counsel ourselves with our own human wisdom, our thought process goes something like this. We might not know this, but it is something that's taking place, and that is saying, I will fix my joy and my contentment on the outcome of something that I expect. So when that desire does not come to pass, then what goes away is the occasion for my joy and my contentment. The very thing that God decides to be the defining characteristic of a believer, his joy in Christ, his contentment in who he is in Christ, um, is no longer as strong as it once was, primarily because we've fixed our joy and our contentment on things working out the way we intended them to. What I did here is list some indicators that might help us understand when it is that we're starting to listen to our own counsel. We're starting to listen to our own thoughts. We're starting to counsel ourselves with what we think instead of what God says. I've got four things that I think are, are things that take place fairly often when we're counseling ourselves with our own words. And the first is a prayerlessness about us. The man who's counseling himself with his own thoughts, he's already convinced himself of the rightness of his desires, the ultimate rightness of his desires. But he doesn't see himself as one who needs wisdom because he thinks he already has it because he understands and he believes that what he's desiring is the right thing and it's the ultimate good for himself. I want you to write down James 1, 5. The person who's convinced of the rightness and goodness of his own thoughts doesn't think he needs to go to the Lord in prayer and ask for wisdom. This is what James 1, 5 says. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. The Lord promises to generously supply wisdom to the man who recognizes that he needs it. That wisdom comes to us when we ask God. You notice in the verse there, James is commanding us to go to the Lord and ask him. That means that we're praying people. So one way you can tell that you're beginning to counsel yourself with your own thoughts is when your prayer life starts to dry up. Another indicator that might indicate that you're starting to counsel yourself with your own thoughts when your expectations aren't met is thanklessness. The man who's counseling himself with his own thoughts has set his heart on what he desires. He sees the ultimate good coming to him in whatever he desires, and he doesn't see things from God's perspective. First, I want you to write down here is Philippians 1.6. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and he's trying to help them understand what God's design and God's intention and God's commitment are for the believer. Paul writes this, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The man who's counseling himself with his own thoughts has lost sight of something. He's lost sight of the fact that God is committed to his sanctification. And that God knows the circumstances that will bring about ultimate good in his life. He's lost sight of that. So when God works for his sanctification by bringing about an undesired circumstance for him, he doesn't receive it with thankfulness because it doesn't align with his thoughts for what is good for him. So another way that you can begin to notice and detect that you're counseling yourself with your own thoughts is when there's an absence of thankfulness to the Lord for the things that are in your own life. A third way in which you can tell that you're beginning to counsel yourself with your own thoughts is hopelessness. And when we think about biblical hope, what biblical hope is, it's a confidence 
in a certain future event. So I'm not talking about I'm hoping that something's going to work out or I'm hoping that I get a, a good grade on this test or whatever, but it's a confidence in a certain future event. And for a Christian, what they're confident of is that Christ is coming again to this earth and he's going to rapture the church away to be with him in the clouds. And there we will be, and there we will be with the Lord forever. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is eager for the return of Christ. He's eagerly awaiting. He's eagerly expecting that. But the man who is counseling himself with his own thoughts, he has set his greatest joy on the things that he desires. And so he doesn't find a whole lot of joy in anticipating the return of Christ because he's fixated and fixed on the things that he desires and the things that he wants. So you can tell when you're beginning to counsel yourself with your own thoughts when you have little or no eagerness for the return of Christ. And lastly, an indicator that I, I think is another good indicator of when you're beginning to counsel yourself with your own thoughts is you're an isolated man in certain regards. The man who counsels himself with his own thoughts thinks more highly of his own thoughts and plans than he does of God's plans and thoughts, and he thinks more highly of his own thoughts than he thinks of any other, any other person's thoughts for him. Proverbs 12, 15, this is a good one. Uh, all of Proverbs are good, but this is relevant to what we're talking about here. It's not like there's the varsity Proverbs, and over here you have the junior varsity Proverbs. That's not what we're communicating. We're saying this particular proverb, 12.15, is relevant to the issue of isolation. So let's get clear on that. Sometimes you have to back up when you're, you're teaching. You have to start over and run through that again. All right, Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You know your brother is going to come to you, and when he comes to you, you know he's going to speak truth from Scripture to you. But because you've already convinced yourself in your mind of the superiority of your own thoughts, the supremacy of your own thoughts, you distance yourself from your friend so that you won't hear his message for you. So that you can tell that you're counseling yourself with your own thoughts. One way you can know that is when you isolate yourself from those who speak truth to you. So we find ourselves becoming less prayerful, less thankful, less hopeful, less connected to others when we're counseling ourselves with our own thoughts. And we tend to stay that way as long as we continue to be impressed with our own thoughts and our own wisdom. Hopelessness. Let me back up. Philippians 3.20. We eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. Wait for a Savior. That's the return of Christ to rapture the church away from this world to be with him. Described real clearly for us, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 16, 17, in there. Scott, would you qualify isolation at all with, with isolation? Like, I mean, I've, I've seen friends go through something similar, but then it, but it's, they have a new set of friends, and they're totally isolated from the, the church. Yeah. The, those who are yeah the idea here is that you're insulating yourself you're isolating yourself from the one who is going to speak a message of truth to you they come to you and they they come to you gently and kindly a few times and then you're giving them the stiff arm because of their message not because they're of anything else but it's because of the content of their message and you're preferring 
to fellowship with those who, who don't confront you with a message of truth uh, when they see something clearly in your life. Um, so this is what happens in our, in our lives. We become less, less thankful, less prayerful, less hopeful, less connected to others. We're going to stay that way as long as we're pretty impressed with ourselves and our own thoughts and our own wisdom. But God has a better design for us. He always does. And uh, his design for us is that instead of listening to our own thoughts, that we listen to his thoughts for us, uh, his divine revelation in Scripture. So what we want to do is, is move on to that, the biblical approach for counseling ourselves with truth from Scripture. Well, one thing we need to understand here is that we don't know what God is going to work out in our lives for this day. We, we don't know what events are coming to us today. Uh, we, we can't ever plan that. We, we couldn't say with any kind of certainty what's going to happen today. Uh, and God knows that. He knows that. He knows that we have plans. He knows that we make plans. That they're prayerful plans. That are well thought out plans. But his wisdom is above ours. His thoughts are above ours. So he gives us a design for how to counsel ourselves when there's not an alignment between what we expect and what God has already divinely planned to come to place in our life. So the first thing we need to do is we need to keep a very clear understanding of God's purpose. This is what gives us a right perspective. And the first thing we need to think about whenever we think about something that was a desire of ours that doesn't work out the way we anticipate it to is that God, first and foremost, is committed to his own glory. Uh, Isaiah 48, 11. And there are so many passages you can read about this. Another one is, is um, Isaiah 57, I think about verse 10 or 11. But Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Notice what God says about glory. He says glory belongs to him. Glory is not ours. It's his. In everything God does, his number one priority, his number one agenda, is that the world would know of his glory. Even in the salvation of the saints, the ultimate objective there is that the world would know of God's glory. And the byproduct of that is God saves uh, unredeemed sinners to himself. He reconciles them to himself. So God's desire is to display his glory to this world. And in the fullness of his wisdom, he knows the perfect circumstances to bring that about. So what we need to do is, is take this truth back to our own circumstances. If God's greatest objective is to put his glory on display, then who are we to decide what circumstances will bring that about? Who are we to decide that? So a question for ourselves is, when my expectations go unmet, how often is my greatest desire to see God glorified? Ask ourselves that. So it's really important that we understand God's commitment to his own glory. It's also really under important that we understand that God is committed to a particular design for my salvation, my sanctification. So God is committed to his own glory and he's committed to our sanctification. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, but before we go there, I want to look at Philippians 1, verse 6. I think we looked at it already. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God didn't, least, didn't simply save us from the penalty of our sin. After conversion, God embarked on a lifelong process of finishing the work that he began in us. There is a positional sanctification that the believer receives at conversion. There is a perfect sanctification the believer will receive at glorification when we get new bodies. 
And between those two bookends, there is a progressive sanctification that takes place, and God is absolutely committed to accomplishing that. And he is going to bring about that through the circumstances that he chooses. And in his wisdom, trials are one of his most frequent means of bringing that about. Let's take a look at what James says about this. If you have your Bibles, turn to James 1. We're going to look at verses 2, 3, and 4. We know this. Josh did such a good job teaching us through this uh, in church. James says, consider. The first word is consider. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our response to a trial, and a trial here being our expectation of something that we had planned for, we've been aiming at, we've been building for, is not met. Our response to that trial is to consider it joy. James is acknowledging that trials aren't naturally a joyful experience. But having a joy in circumstance requires that we consider something. That means that we give an issue some thought and some prayer. And the following verses help us understand what we're to be joyful about. Again, a trial doesn't naturally bring joy welling up in us. It's when we think through what God is doing in the trial that does produce joy in the believer. In verse 3, we see that the trial produces endurance. Our faith, when it's tested, produces an endurance within us. But we aren't to be joyful over simply enduring through a trial. What we're to be joyful about when we look at this passage really closely is we're to be joyful over the result that the endurance brings about. We see that in verse 4. Sustained endurance renders you perfect and complete. The idea behind perfect and complete here is a man in whom there is nothing lacking. At the end of the man's life, the work of sanctification has run its course. His progressive sanctification has completed, and he is ready for the perfect sanctification of glorification with God when he's resurrected out of this body. When we counsel ourselves with Scripture, we realize that God is using his divinely appointed circumstance to continue us on the sanctification process that he began in us at conversion. So a couple of questions here, really. Ultimately, do I want my desire to be fulfilled? Or... Do I want the sanctification that God will build in me through joyfully submitting to the circumstances that he has chosen to bring about that sanctification? So God's ultimate objective is his glory, his weightiness, his impressiveness, that the world would know that about him. But secondarily, he's committed to preparing us for the day when we will be reunited with Christ, with resurrected bodies that have no sin. So it's really important that we remember what God's purpose is in all of this. Secondly, it's really important that we remember what we truly deserve. What we truly deserve is God's judgment and God's wrath. My favorite passage when I, when I start thinking about my own desires is I, I have to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The end of chapter 1 is, is excellent. It talks about who Christ is and that Christ has a place of rule and reign over everything. And then God begins to talk to us in chapter 2 about who we once were and what we deserved. So often when our expectations go unmet, we find ourselves thinking about what we deserve. And we've been thinking about so much about what we desire that we've lost sight of what we deserve. If you look at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we get a really good picture of what it is that we truly deserve. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Paul's reminding them, you guys, me, all of us, we were born in a particular condition, and that condition was one in which we lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, just like every other person in this world. So Paul's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he's reminding them of their former condition. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's telling them, you were spiritually bankrupt before God. You were incapable of any spiritual good, and you walked according to the course of this world. He's telling everybody here, our rebellion against God was not a passive rebellion. It was an active rebellion against God. And the way that we did that was we indulged the desires of the flesh and the mind. Whatever we saw that was appealing to us, whatever it was, whether we were four years old, or 14 years old, or 24 years old, or 74 years old, we ran after it, and we pursued it. And look at what this purchased for us at the end of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath. What this means is that at one time God's wrath was due to us, it was not yet meted out, but it remained on us. John 3.36 God is saying, what I, what I have for you to understand, what you need to know and what you need to grasp, is that what you really deserve is my wrath. Every single one of us absolutely deserves his wrath. So when we have unmet expectations in our lives, we need to ask ourselves this question. What we need to ask ourselves is, when I think about what I deserve, whose standard am I using to evaluate that? Am I using my standard? I've worked really hard for this promotion. I'm really trying to provide for my family. I really want to have a family. Am I using my standard or am I using God's standard? God has one standard for us, and that is his righteousness and his holiness. So it's really helpful to think about God's overarching purpose in all that he does. It's really helpful to think about what it is that we deserve. But we need to recognize who we are now in Christ, our identity in Christ, and what that means for us. First thing we need to understand about our identity in Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, is that we are not our own. This is really helpful. This is really, really helpful for me. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and this is a church that had lots of opportunities to run after their flesh, lots of opportunities to pursue all the things that they wanted, lots of opportunities to set up desires and objectives and, and plans. Paul writes to them and he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. So what the believer needs to remember is that I am not my own. I am not my own. I have these desires, I have these plans, I have these objectives with my life, and they're good, but I need to remember that I'm not my own. I belong to the one who purchased me, and the price of that purchase was his own blood, his Christ and his own blood. He is the one who purchased me, and he did it with his own blood. I need to remember that. So I don't belong to myself, and the events of my life don't belong to me either. 
I'm part of the church from which he purchased with his own blood. My salvation has cost me something very, very substantial. That is, it's cost me my identity. Formerly, my identity was one of my own master, my own self-rule. I ran after my own self-rule. I loved running after my own self-rule. It was harmful to me. It was destructive to me. But now I have a new identity, and that identity is I'm not my own. So when the circumstances of my life aren't as I wish they would be, am I currently thinking like one who is not his own, or am I thinking like one who is his own? Not only is the Christian not their own, but they're actually a slave to somebody else. That's the second thing I want us to understand about this. We see that in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Jesus is speaking. This is a wonderful stretch of of teaching. Uh, Jesus has talked about woe to the one who brings stumbling to the young ones and the little ones. And here he's writing to help those who are truly saints understand their condition, their nature, the relationship to the one that they who is their master. So Jesus says, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. First, let's just take a look at the activities that the slave is performing for the master. In verse 7, he's plowing and he's tending to sheep. In verse 8, he's preparing something for his master to eat. And he's serving his master while his master eats. Then in verse 9, notice the disposition of the slave. This is really helpful. The slave did the things which were commanded. It's the slave's mindset. He does what he's commanded. The slave doesn't make his own plan for what he should do. And he's not resentful towards his master for his master's plan for what he should do. It's the same thing for us. When our circumstances are not what we had hoped they would be, we need to remember our identity as a slave who does what his master has for him. I have a verse for you to write down that I think is really, really helpful for this. It's Ephesians 2, verse 10. We spent a little bit of time in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talking about our former condition, the condition in which we were, in which we were subject to the wrath of God. We were children of wrath just like everybody else. Starting in verse 4 through verse 9, you see God's design for how he saves. It is by grace you have been saved. And God does this so that the riches of his kindness and grace towards us in Christ Jesus will be put on display in the age to come. So you have this horrible situation of the, the unbeliever who's, who's in a position of judgment. Then you have God's saving work in the life of that person to redeem that person to himself. All for God's glory in the age to come. And look at what verse 10 says. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared these beforehand. And by beforehand, Paul doesn't mean yesterday. 
Paul means before there was any time, there was any space, there was any color or any temperature, God sovereignly ordained all of the events that would come to pass in our lives. The most beneficial for us was the actual salvation of our souls. But every other thing God ordained as well as a part of his plan to sanctify us. So the slave recognizes his circumstances are the good works which God has prepared for him. He sees these and he says, Lord, this doesn't align very well with what I was hoping for, but this is exactly what you have prepared for me. So I'm going to walk in them. I'm going to walk in them with joy because it's what you prepared for me. What I have at the end of this is really four indicators that you can be encouraged by when you are listening to Scripture, when you are using God's truth of His Word to counsel your own thoughts. And these are the opposite of what we have earlier when we're counseling ourselves with our own thoughts. And the first is prayerfulness. I want you to write down Ephesians 4.16. No, sorry, 6.18. I think I have that in there already. Ephesians 6.18 The man who counsels himself with Scripture knows that he needs more than just the words of Scripture to guide him. He actually needs the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to guide him with the application of those Scriptures into his life. So he's eager to draw near to the Holy Spirit in prayer and ask for the grace that he needs to do this. Ephesians 6.18 With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request to all the saints. A couple of observations about what Paul is saying here. With every prayer and request, pray at all times. Everything you pray about, and by the way, you should be praying all the time. There is no issue that doesn't warrant us taking up that issue with the Lord. There's not a single issue. Something's really wrong with our assessment of ourselves and of our circumstances if we think that there's something in our life that's not worthy of taking it before the Lord in prayer. I need to counsel myself with that truth all the time. So first Paul is saying, you need to be praying all the time and there's nothing that you you shouldn't be praying about. And notice how he says we pray. He says we pray in a particular way. And what is that way we pray? We pray in the Spirit. The idea here is, is one of being in agreement with God. So that when we pray, we're recognizing his sovereign will in an issue. And we plead for his grace to enable us to navigate what he has already decreed will come to pass. When we're praying about something, it's a good guide to pray the same way that Jesus prayed. If you ever want to learn how to pray, if you want to grow your prayer life, if you want to grow deeper in your prayer life, read the prayers of Jesus. and He'll tell you exactly how you pray. Whether Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, whether he's in Luke 23 or whether he's teaching the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6 what is his prayer his prayer is that the father's will be done not my will but your will be done so we pray that the father's will would be done and that the father would align our will to his will we share what our requests are we share what our concerns are we share what our desires are but Lord make my desires in agreement in alignment with your plan for my life So the man who counsels himself with Scripture is a praying man. Because he knows the truth of Scripture and he he needs grace to enable him to walk rightly in that. So he comes before the Lord and asks for that grace. Then he's a thankful man. 
Colossians 3, 15 through 17. This is really great. If you're ever wondering what body life should look like, read Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And again, remember how well Josh preached through it just a couple of months back. Let the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So why is the man who counsels him with scripture a thankful man? Look at verse 15. He's thankful because he's at peace with Christ's lordship over his life. And he's thankful for that lordship. He remembers his condition that he was in before Christ was lord over his life. And he's thankful that he has a better master, a better Lord. He's at peace with Christ. And so that gives him a thankful disposition. Why does he sing with thankfulness? He sings with thankfulness because the scripture that he uses to counsel himself tells him about God's overarching purpose for him, that God is committed to his glory, that God is committed to his sanctification. And this man knows that there's no thing better than what God has decreed for him to come to pass. So he sings with thankfulness. He knows that God's wisdom is far above his own. Isaiah 55, 8. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. God's ways are far above ours. He knows that his own desires, if not counseled with the truth of Scripture, will lead him away. And so he's thankful that the knowledge of ultimate good has come to pass. One question we can ask ourselves here is, how do we grow in our thankfulness to the Lord? I think there's two answers. The first answer is we read Scripture. We read Scripture to remind ourselves of the big picture of what God is actually doing. And secondly, we pray. We pray to allow the Holy Spirit to correct any unbiblical thinking that we have as it relates to our plans and our desires and our purposes. So the one who's counseling himself with the scriptures and the truth of God's word is going to see a thankfulness in his life. He's thankful for what God does. So be encouraged when you notice in yourself a thankfulness to the Lord. You're praying, you're, you're walking through your prayer life with the Lord and, and you notice that there's thankfulness. You're thanking the Lord at every turn for, for the events that have come to pass and for the way that he answers prayer and all of those things. Be encouraged that, that that's an indicator that you're counseling yourself with the truth from God's word. The man who's counseling himself with God's word is also a hopeful man. He's very, very hopeful. And again, hope is a confidence in a certain future event. I love this verse. We're going to get here soon in Romans. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the word hope is used twice there. Hope has its origin, it has its source, it has its reason, it has its basis in God himself. The hope Paul is speaking about here again is the confidence of a certain future event. And for the Christian, their confidence in that event is the return of Christ to rapture the church away to be with him. That's what we're hopeful about. This is increasingly the mindset of the one who counsels themselves with scripture. 
This man lives believing that his citizenship is in heaven, and he lives ultimately with that end in mind. The man who counsels himself with his own thoughts is focused on this world, specifically the things that he desires to come to pass. So when you find yourself anticipating the return of Christ, longing for the return of Christ, wishing for the return of Christ, what you're doing is you're counseling yourself with the truth of Scripture that Christ is coming, that the Word of God is true, that He is coming. There is a day that God has appointed that will bring Christ here to us again. So be encouraged by that. And lastly, uh, the opposite of isolation or insulation from believers who will speak truth to you is fellowship. Biblical fellowship with men and women who love God, who speak to you. Uh, This is uh, something that everybody at this church should understand and know. I hope everybody understands this. It's something that has been a blessing to me as, as I've grown in my understanding of this. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. And this describes God's design for how we individually grow personally. The way we grow personally has an effect on the way the body corporately grows. What I want to do is when we get to verse 16, I'm going to read the first phrase in the verse. And then I'm going to read a phrase near the end of the verse. And I'm going to read the whole verse again. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, and then we're going to jump ahead, causes the growth of the body. I'm going to read verse 16 again. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what does fellowship with others have to do with me counseling myself with Scripture? Well, some observations from this passage help us. First of all, Paul says, how are we speaking to one another? We're speaking the truth to one another in love. All of what follows in the, in the passage after that is predicated on men speaking the truth to one another when we get together. We get together for fellowship. We get together at small group. We get together here. We get together here tomorrow. Um, We speak the truth to one another, and we speak it in love. We speak it kindly, we speak it gently, enabled by his grace to do that. And the ultimate source of that truth is what God has revealed to us in his word. So our words are to be seeded with or to contain scripture. And we look at this. The whole body causes the growth of the body. God's design is that the corporate body is the means by which the corporate body grows. And how does it grow? It grows by being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, by the proper working of each individual part. So how do individual joints in the body grow? They grow by being supplied by other joints in the body. That doesn't happen without fellowship. That doesn't happen without gathering together in your small group or, or organically yourself with a bunch of friends or here at Build, the ladies over there in Wellspring mom's group it happens when we get together and we have fellowship and we speak the truth to one another in love so the man who considers the man who counsels himself with scripture recognizing it is God's design for other men to be in the source of that counsel that's part of God's design for us not only are we reading God's word 
and counseling ourselves with the truth of God's word. But that's being reinforced when we gather together with other guys and they're saying the same thing because they're reading the same book we're reading. They're asking for the same help from the same Holy Spirit to guide them as well. So my heart in all of this is that we would see and we would understand that, that God has a design for us of how to conduct ourselves and how to think and how to worship him in the life circumstances that he has prepared for us when they differ from what we've expected. And sometimes they can be really, really, really hard. And sometimes they're really minor, less of a challenge. But in every single um, event, in every single circumstance, God's design is the same thing. That we remember that he has revealed himself to us in his word. His promises are true. He is good. He is near to every one of us who draws near to him. And uh, it is good. It is right. It is helpful to counsel ourselves with scripture and to surround ourselves with guys who will do the same. That's my prayer for us today. I hope that was an encouragement to you guys this morning. Let me close our time in prayer, okay? Father, I'm very thankful for these men. I'm thankful for the testimony that's right here in this room, Lord. With all the men that are gathered here together, Lord, this represents many saving works that you have performed in our lives. Lord, every single one of us can look back to the kind of person we were before you saved us and we can see your kindness and goodness and your grace to us in the ensuing years and and decades lord i praise you for your kindness and goodness to save us to send us a savior who would rescue us from our sin and spare us from the judgment that we deserve i thank you lord that your son hung on a cross for six hours in our place and absorbed all of your wrath that was due to us and because of that we we have no fear of eternal judgment from you we can live in peace free from that now lord i thank you that in addition to saving us you are concerned greatly about our sanctification lord in your wisdom you bring things to us that are not what we planned not what we considered or not what we had thought of lord i pray for myself and i pray for these men that you would help us when these events come to pass to counsel ourselves with your word and to remind us of the goodness of who you are Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Thank you that your word is reliable. Thank you that your word will never fail, and it will always be here for us. We praise you for that. In Christ's name.